is on love, right? Everyone remember that? You're remembering last week, the week before, right? We've been in this series on love, and it's been based around a a book by Bill Hybels, right? A, A book called Who You Are, when no one is looking. And, and if you've been with us for, for the last three weeks, you'll know that love is, is tough, but love also needs to be tender, yeah? You'll know that love is, is always sacrificial. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the last type of love in this, in this book and in our series. I want to talk to you today about radical love, right? Who here likes the word radical, right? That's, that's a good word, right? I get... I, I, Rad love didn't quite work out the same way, but, but you can turn to your neighbor and just say to them in your best, like you might want to add a kawabunga on the ends. I don't know, do you? But just turn to your neighbor and say radical, but you've got to say it properly. Some of you said it properly. You can try it one more time. Turn to your neighbor and say radical, like radical, like you're in um, Dude, Where's My Car, right? Oh, man, man. We, we'll stop there or else the sermon will end up just trying to quote Dude, Where's My Car. Uh, lyrics. Hey, very cool. Who here has a Bible? Yep, good. For those of you that don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have a very big one. Uh, We're going to put it up on the screen. If you've got your Bible with me, uh, if you've got your Bible here today, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 39 to 48. I'm reading in the NLT translation. Uh, If you've got a bunch of different translations on your phone or a stack of Bibles under your seat. Uh, But we're going to read along. It, it, It says this, but I say, this is Jesus speaking, But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why don't you close your your eyes with me? Why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray. God, I thank you for for the next 30 minutes that we have together. God, as as, as we look at this idea of radical love, of of what you were speaking about when you you said these words to the disciples and those gathered at that that mount when, when you preached that sermon, God. God, that we would lean in and, and know what it means to love radically. What it means to love beyond ourselves, God. God, that we would learn something here this morning that might even frighten us a little bit, but that it would excite us. God, that you would be speaking here this morning, that it wouldn't be my words, that it wouldn't be us gathered together, but we know that you are here in our midst and we lean in and ask, God, what is it that you want to say to us this morning? Thank you that you love us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Matthew chapter 5 is an interesting scripture, right? This could be your first time in church, but chances are somewhere, some way, someone said something to you and the words were taken from this scripture, right? Maybe someone offended you, someone hurt you, and, and, and some wise older person, maybe a parent said to you, come on, Jonathan, you really just need to turn the other cheek. 
I know that, you know, they stole your Tonka truck and you're 14. You should stop playing with Tonka trucks. But you just need to turn the other cheek. Or, or maybe someone sat you down and said, look, I understand that this could be your finished homework. The answers are technically, you know, there's something written in each space. But don't you just want to go the extra mile? Couldn't you just try a little bit harder? You're kind of doing the bare minimum. I don't think you want to be a bare minimum type of person. Has anyone ever had someone say something to them that kind of reminded them of this passage, right? Come on, turn the other cheek. Come on, go the extra mile. Come on, why are you asking for the shirt off my back? See, it's interesting that this, this collection of verses, this scripture has touched our culture so strongly. Right, that it's so strongly in, embedded in our culture. Some of these words can kind of just glance off of us a little bit. You know, we know them, that they seem just like truisms, that we've heard them before. But when Jesus preached these now familiar words, when he said to the disciples, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, offer them the other. If you are sued in court for your shirt, give them your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, go too. He was trying to communicate to his disciples, this, this important thing that Jesus was all about. He was trying to convey to them who it was that he is and the way that he saw the world. What we need to remember, when Jesus speaks these words in Matthew chapter 5, Easter hasn't happened yet. Right, that, that weekend, last weekend when you ate too much chocolate and now you still kind of feel a little bit sick and a little bit bloated. And it's all right, right, we'll get healthy. That hasn't happened yet. That moment where, more importantly, Jesus died for the sins of humanity and, and everyone realized that this man was about so much more than they thought. It hasn't happened yet. And so the disciples, they all think that Jesus is here to become king. Right, that he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That he's going to become the rightful king of Israel, like in King David's time. Some of them, they've even started to pick out their names, right? Peter and, Peter and James are talking. Peter's like, oh, I'm going to be Sir Peter, the rock, right? And James is like, oh, I'm going to be Sir James of the thunder, right? That's a little theology joke for you. Some of you will be like, I don't get it. It's all right. It's fine. It's fine, right? I just, I, I wrote it, so I, I put it in. But they're expecting that Jesus is going to, to do this amazing thing where he overthrows society and, and Jesus is there and he's talking to them and he basically says, you need to understand what it means to love like I love. You need to understand radical love. Right? So why does this matter? Why would Jesus give these examples, tell this story to these people? If you're taking notes today, I have two ideas that I want to share with you. The first idea that I want to share with you is that God is a God for radical love. God is a God for radical love, right? What does this mean? Jesus explains this idea of radical love to them with three examples, right? The cheek, the coat, and the bag. And, and in the book that we've based this series around, Bill Hybels unpacks these ideas, unpacks each example. And I just want to quickly go through each example for you because there's something in each one of them, right? The first example is the cheek. I want you to just rub your hand on your, um, on your leg a little bit. Just get it, you know, nice and clean, nice and ready. Now I want you to take your, your neighbor by their chin and I want you to slap them right across. No, don't, don't. Right, but, but, do we really need to explain this example, right? Who here has ever been slapped in the face? Don't raise your hand, sorry, that would be bad, right? Who here, can, we can relate, right? We, we might know, per chance, what it might feel like to be slapped in the face. Or we might know what it might feel like to, to be punched in the face. And 
It's not much of a surprise that in Middle Eastern times, in, in, in Jerusalem at that time, being slapped in the face it wasn't a compliment, right? It, some things are different to how they are now. Being slapped in the face has kind of always been not a great thing, right? It's not like, oh, that's actually what you did when you really loved someone. You walked up to them, you're like, great to see you today, right? No, not, not a thing. Being slapped in the face was an offense. Being slapped in the face was actually one of the worst offenses you could, be, uh, you could receive in these times. It was, it was considered the ultimate degradation. I don't know if you've ever been uh, slapped or, or punched in the face, but there's something about it. Something about that feeling of being slapped or punched in the face, it, it sends you reeling, right? A, a punch to the guts might wind you. A, a kick to the shins might, might cause you to cry out in pain. But, but nothing will make your eyes water and your fists clench in anticipation of retaliation like a slap to the face, right? And so Jesus is saying when that happens, when someone offends you and everything in you, your innate reaction is to respond like for like, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, slap for a slap. Don't slap them back. Don't, don't, don't even scream at them. Don't even curse at them under your breath. Instead, look them straight in the eye and you'll remind yourself that they matter to God. That even in that moment, God is trying to reach out to them. And in fact, God is looking for someone that he could show his love for this person through. So when someone slaps you in your face and, and everything in you wants to respond, breathe deeply and do something far more impacting than a slap in return, something that won't mark their face but, but might even mark their soul, and turn the other cheek. See, because here's the thing, radical love breaks the cycle. The next example that Jesus talks about is that of the coat, right? A brief explanation of Middle Eastern wardrobes. You probably didn't think you were going to hear that when you came along to church today, right? But, but in Middle Eastern times, back in, in kind of the New Testament, people wore two types of clothing, right? The first thing that they wore was an inner garment, and it was made of soft fabric. It, it sat next to the skin, and because it was a part of, of your daily attire, right? Because you always wore it and you would sweat into it. Most people own several sets, right? Because let's all understand it's important to wash your clothes. It's just a practical bit of, bit of <laughs> thanks, Buddy. Buddy's just uh, reminding Dougal that that is, that is true. Right, and, and, and so you would have multiple inner garments because you would wear one and one would be on the line, right? The line being the washing line, not like, anyway. Not online, like you didn't list it on Trade Me back in Middle Eastern times. Like, I'm wearing this one, but I'm trying to sell the other one, so this is all I got. Right, so you, you would have this, this, uh, this inner garment that was soft and you would wear next to your clothes. And then over the inner garment, you would wear a heavy, loose-fitting, warm outer garment. And this outer garment, it, it served two purposes. During the day, it was like a blazer. It was, it was formal wear. You could wear it, and, and people would consider you to be adequately dressed, right? You weren't just in kind of your, your inner clothes. You weren't just wearing your shirt. You also had your coat on, and so you could go into places. But at night, it functioned as a blanket, right? Some of us might have been thinking as Jesus and the disciples getting into their, their beds at night, hopping onto their nice uh, mattress, turning on their electric blanket, pulling up their, their feather-down duvet. It wasn't quite like that, right? See, see a, a coat at night was your only blanket, and, and it got really cold at night in the Middle East. And, and so if a man didn't have a blanket, 
a coat, an outer garment to keep them warm at night, you'd freeze and you'd most likely get sick. See, your, your coat was so important that it was protected by law. See, what would often happen is during trading and bartering, it was common to hold each other's clothes as collateral. Often that was the only other thing that people owned. And so it was common to hold their clothes as collateral until the deal was finished, until all parties were, were equally kind of sated, that the deal was done, everyone was happy what it, with what had happened. And, and usually the, the garment that was held kind of ransom was the inner garment. Because everyone had a couple of them, and, and, and even a poor person would, would have a few of them. And, and the outer garment, the coat, wasn't usually used. And the main reason it wasn't usually used was because it was illegal to keep someone's outer garment overnight. Even if they had broken the deal, even if they had run off with your stock, if you took their outer coat, you had a legal obligation to give it back to them, right? Because it was too important. It was, it was too integral to society that, that people needed this coat to stay healthy, right? So, so what Jesus is basically saying is when you have the legal right to avoid discomfort, when legally you only have to give someone your shirt as insurance, when legally you only have to give someone your shirt in case you've done something wrong to them, don't follow the law, do what is right. See, I believe he is essentially saying when you have the opportunity to make yourself more comfortable, to help yourself at the expense of another, Right, to, to hide that little mistake at work, to, to do those little things that is wrong, but no one will ever know about. Right, where technically you're in the right. You know, if someone sat you down and said, you know, why did you do that? You'd be able to list through, well, technically, I'm fine. Right, technically, I'm within my rights to do it this way. Instead of doing what is technically right, do what is actually right. Instead of following your legal right, do the opposite. Because it would seem that according to Jesus, the demands of radical love often exceed those of any written law. See, love never seeks to get away with doing the bare minimum. What does that look like today? Maybe it's paying more in tax than your accountant could help you pay. You know, legally, you could definitely pay this much. But maybe you know in your heart, actually, uh, that's not the intent of the law. The intent is for me to pay this much. Maybe it's logging the hours at work that you've actually worked. You know, no one's going to know if I just round it up. No one's going to know if I just say I was here for eight and a half rather than eight. You know, no one's going to know that, that actually my lunch break went a little bit long. But maybe it's speaking out about the overpayment. Hey, I, I, I think actually when I sold you that item online, you were meant to pay me $30 and you paid me 40 and you haven't seemed to say anything, but, but let me give it back to you. Maybe it's, it's reminding the waiter, actually, you, you charged me for just one drink, but I had two. It's taking this moment where no one would know, where technically you are in the right, and it's saying, actually, radical love is not, is not doing what's permissible. Radical love is doing what is right. See, the final example that Jesus uses is, is that of the bag. And, and as we know, at this time, Israel was ruled by Rome, right? And, and, and Roman governors, they were stationed throughout the empire, and, and soldiers occupied the various provinces. And as a result of Roman occupation, a Roman soldier had the legal right to approach a Jewish person and, and to coerce them into service. 
any time of the day, day or night, they could come to a Jewish civilian and they could make them make their meals or, or do their laundry or, or provide lodging or whatever else the soldier thought needed to be done according to them. Right? And, and the Jewish people, they, they hated this. Soldiers were, were always moving about the land and, and horses were expensive to keep and, and the airplane hadn't been invented yet. And so what the Roman soldiers would often do is rather than carrying their gear from, from this place to that place, they would go to a Jewish person and they would make the Jewish person carry their baggage. In fact, historians tell us that the Jewish people hated this practice so intensely. They, they felt so uh, devalued by it. They felt so marginalized by it. They felt so oppressed by it that, that the, the Roman governors put a law in place and they told the Roman soldiers, look, you can only make a Jewish person carry your baggage for a mile. Right? That's the legal end of it. No longer than a mile because otherwise these Jewish people, they're getting so, so upset. We're going to have an uprising on our hands. And so uh, uh, they could only force a Jewish person to carry their bag for no more than a mile at a time. So Jesus is saying, when a soldier comes up to you, interrupts your day, costing you time and resources to carry their bags while they walk along next to you leisurely, eating their grapes, talking to their friends, making you stop so they could adjust their sandal. When that happens and you get to the end of your obligatory mile, instead of dropping their bag on the ground, hoping that something inside breaks, instead of shaking the dust off your coat and spitting at their feet and telling them that they're a horrible person and walking away, turn to the Roman soldier and say, is this all you want me to do? I know I've gone the, the mile that is required of me, but do you need anything else? Can I go the extra mile? Can I go a little bit further for you? Jesus is saying to show them radical love. To say to him, look, is there anything else I can do? Because here's the thing. You thought you were pressing me into service. You thought that you were forcing me to be kind to you, forcing me to help you. But I'm actually grateful for the chance to help. I'm actually looking for places that I can help others. Is there anything else that I can do? Because radical love is not an obligation. Radical love is an opportunity. See, Jesus uses these three examples of radical love because better than anyone else who ever has or ever will live, he understands that true change, lasting change, change that matters only occurs through love. That sin was only defeated through love. See, love was of the utmost importance to Jesus and the early disciples. That's why Jesus says in, in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And, and, and Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. See, because if, if God is for radical love, and, and love is turning the other cheek and breaking cycles, 
Love is giving up your coat and doing what is right, not just permissible. If, if love is going the extra mile because it's not an obligation but an opportunity, surely the question is why? Right? If it's so clear to us what radical love is, inconvenient. Right? If it's so clear to us what radical love is, really hard. If it's so clear to us what radical love is, something that we would rather Jesus didn't actually talk about. If it's so clear to us what radical love is, why is Jesus asking us to love radically? Why is he telling the disciples such a detailed example of what radical love looks like? And by extension, why is he speaking directly to us? Because Jesus knew that these words weren't just for the disciples, weren't just for the crowd gathered as he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that someone else was going to hear it. He knew that these words would fall on your ears today. So why has he spoken them through time to us? See, I'd like to suggest that the reason is because love, radical love, is the only way to stop the world's natural tendency to spiral towards destruction. Radical love is how we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So you'll all know that Tuesday is Anzac Day, right? And I find Anzac Day really interesting. One of the most amazing things that I find personally about Anzac Day is there's a memorial in Wellington. Does anyone know the Ataturk Memorial? Right, some of you might have seen it. It's, it's in uh, Wellington. It's up on the top of Tarakina Bay. It kind of looks out over the ocean. It's a bit hidden. You'll, you'll be walking along kind of the um, city to sea walkway, and, and you'll just come across this massive kind of uh, crescent structure just in the middle of nowhere. Right, I remember one day I was just walking this path, and I came across this memorial, and I, I started reading about it. See, that this memorial, it, it honors Mustaf Kemal Ataturk. And he was the first president of Turkey, which is, you know, an important thing. He united the, the Ottoman Empire after a, a very divisive war, right? But, but more than that, General Ataturk actually led the Ottoman forces in Gallipoli. This general, he was the, the one who led the opposition forces that killed so many of the Anzacs. And we have a memorial, a, a monument to him in our capital. And on the monument, there's a quote from General Ataturk. It says this, Those heroes who shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mahets to us where they lie side by side in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they became our sons as well. See, I don't know why, but, but whenever I read that and when I came across it, it hit me. I started reading it in this middle of this walk that I was doing on a Saturday, and I, I started to get choked up because I realized that, that if we approach a conflict and we only look to get our own back, if we approach a situation where someone has hurt us and our only, our only thought, our only goal is equal retaliation, we will always have hate. But to approach a conflict in which friends and family died and to say not only do we forgive those who killed them, but we honor them. Not only do we forgive what you've done, but we honor you knowing that you were in a horrible situation and you're not a bad person. It was just a bad, bad place. That takes courage. 
that takes love. See, what I love about Anzac Day is it isn't just a day of patriotism where we say, yeah, New Zealand, we're amazing. We're better than anyone else. We, we, just, we defeat our enemies. Look at our military might. Aren't we amazing? It's a moment to stop and say war is horrible. People should never die at the hands of another person, and we will remember what has happened, and we will be committed to peace. See, I think the, the most amazing example of this is, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his speech on March 17, 1966, at the Southern Methodist University, he talks to them about agape love. Agape is, is one of the three Greek words for love, and, and Dr. King says that agape is more than friendship. He says that, that agape is understanding the creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. He goes on to say that theologians would say that it is an overflowing love that is the love of God operating in the human heart. That when one rises to love on this level, he loves every man, not because he likes him, not because his ways appeal to him, but because God loves him. And he rises to the level of loving the person who does the evil deed by hating the evil deed that the person does. Dr. King says he thinks that this is what Jesus meant when he said to love your enemies and that he is so happy he didn't say to like your enemies. Because there are times when some people are pretty difficult to like. But Jesus said love them and love is greater than like. Love is understanding the creative goodwill for all men. When you stand up against the evil system and yet understand the perpetrator of that evil system. Dr. King goes on to say, and, and I just want you to lean in and hear this. He says to this gathering of people who are currently being oppressed currently having their rights held from them, currently being told that they are less than human. He tells them that they need to look into the face of their most violent opponent and say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. Dr. King says we cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail and we will still love you. Threaten our, our children and bomb our churches and our homes and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half for dead and we will still love you. But be assured we will wear you down with all the lashings that we suffer. One day we will win our freedom and we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process. And so our victory will be a double victory. See, why is God a God for radical love? Because radical love is the only way to stop the cycle. See, hopefully none of us have had someone uh, actively campaign to have us treated as less than human. Right, maybe our, our conflicts haven't been of that grand a scale. Maybe they've been a little bit chillier. Those cold wars that we seem to fight at home and in the office. 
that, that, that we have with our friends and family where someone hurts us and they end in detachment, distrust, alienation, bitterness, name-calling, gossip, separation, and isolation. Where in our lives can we learn from Jesus and follow the example of Dr. King and show radical love? In your marriage, are you willing to be the one to break the icy silence that occupies the home after feelings have been hurt? At work, are you willing to say, look, I apologize. Let me help you with one of your projects so that your load will be easier, even though you still think that you were in the right. Where in our lives can we turn the other cheek, breaking the cycles of destruction? Where in our lives can we give up our coat, doing what is right, not what is permissible? Where in our lives can we go the extra mile, not because it's an obligation, but an opportunity? Where can we choose to say, look, I don't have to love you right now. If, if I looked at right and wrong, just and unjust, it would be just for me to not it would be just for me to turn my face from you and continue not talking to you. It would be just for me to, to avoid this opportunity to reach out to you, but I'm going to love you radically. Even though you've hurt me, even though I think I'm in the right, I'm not going to stand on my right. I'm going to reach out in love. See, but here's the thing. When I think about doing that, if we're being honest, when I think about radically loving someone, I kind of get a little bit um, despondent. I, I, I start to despair a little bit because what is being proposed kind of feels a little bit ridiculous. Right? Like, I, I'm not sure about you, but I'm not naturally inclined to be a self sacrificing saint. Right? I'm really sorry to disappoint. Right? I'm super sorry to shatter illusions. Some are like, oh, I thought Jonah was the last good one left. Here we go. No one was thinking that. Right? But, but I don't know about you, but I don't find it easy to love people radically. I don't know about you, but in fact, I struggle not to tailgate the person that just dangerously overtook me. I, I don't know about you, but, but I struggle to not find a loophole and, and do what is, you know, it's, it's okay, it's permissible and look out for me. No, actually, I don't have to do that. I can get away with just doing this and it would be a lot easier. I, I struggle to, to not just stay in my lane and love only those who I want to. And, and it feels like I'm just meant to start loving unconditionally. Right? Like, like I'm just meant to, to start. I'm not a betting man, but, but if I'm being honest, the odds aren't high of me loving unconditionally tomorrow. Right? If Jesus' intent here is, is, is to, to make me feel good about myself, be like, hey, Jono, here's a job that you can do. This seems like a Jono-sized job. You should have no trouble doing it. He, he missed the mark a little bit. But if Jesus' intent here is to bring me to the end of myself, to the end of my capacity, of my capability, to leave me saying, God, are you serious? I can't do this. Wouldn't it be just like God to tell you to do something that you can't do without Him. See, see, the premise of this passage is that you are actually experiencing the life-changing transformation of God's love, of God's agape, not just in a moment on a Sunday or in an altar call, but with every breath you draw into your body. Because the second idea I want to share with you as the, as the band comes up is that God is a God of radical love. See, I've, I've been reading the Bible lately because I'm, I'm very holy. 
And you'll know because I, I struggle to do anything at all that I consider to be cool without sharing it with everyone, that I've been reading uh, the Bible using this app called Read Scripture, right? Which is, it's an app put together by the people uh, at the Bible Project. And, and they put together uh, videos that explain themes and books of the Bible. It's, it's an awesome resource. I, I highly recommend it, right? So, so I began reading the, the Bible in this Bible in a Year plan on February 22nd, right? February 22nd, I began in, in Genesis. And the app gave me some interesting videos. And, and Genesis is a pretty interesting book. And, and so I kind of, I whizzed through that. Then I hit Exodus, right? Which is awesome because Exodus has got really interesting stories. We're going to be preaching about Exodus from next week onwards, which is going to be great because it's a really interesting book. And it had great videos. And I was able to supplement it with just a few music videos from the Prince of Egypt, right? Which we all know is the greatest movie of all time. So that was quite fun on the train. I was sitting there. I was like, I sang to myself. It was great. And then two days before my birthday, March 23rd, God gave me the gift of the book of Leviticus. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's about around this time when people are going through Bible plans that, that the numbers continuing sharply drop, right? Leviticus is the Bible version of burpees. It's, it's not easy. And, and, and so I started reading Leviticus, and Leviticus begins with extensive, let's be honest, boring lists of, of instructions on how to offer five different sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And then to add to that, there's verse after verse after verse seemingly repeated of instructions on what to do with the fat of the animal that you're offering, that the loins of the animal that you're offering, the long lobe of the liver of the human sacrifice. No, I'm just joking. I was just checking your still listening. Right, what to do with the blood? There's a lot about blood. There's a lot of blood in that book. Right, but, but the interesting thing about the book of Leviticus is the book begins with God telling Moses to tell the people, when you bring an offering to the Lord, this, this word here, offering, in the Hebrew language is the word korban, and it means to draw near. See, the understanding in this place and time and, and in every other religion in the world is that the gods were distant. The gods were detached. The gods were demanding and constantly needing to be appeased. You never knew where you stood with the gods. And so Leviticus starts with this announcement that this is a God who you can draw near to. See, and people hear this and their minds were being blown because people didn't talk about gods like this. People didn't conceive of gods like this, but this God, the God of Moses is different. You can come near to this God. You can relate to this God. Then it, it goes on to talk about the different types of offerings the Jewish people could make, the different ways that they could draw near. In other words, it says you can know where you stand with God. If you suddenly realize that you did something wrong several days ago, there's an offering that means you don't have to worry about where you stand with God. Then there's an offering where, where if you're unintentionally harming someone but only just found out about, there's an offering. If you had a deep sense of anxiety in your conscience from something you felt guilty about, there was an offering because this book that we now skip over, that now seems a little bit primitive, this book is God approaching a humanity who had no idea how to approach Him. This book is God coming to us and, and talking to us in ways that we could understand, talking to us through sacrifice to, to say things that they couldn't comprehend, that they could have a relationship with God. This book is, is God inviting people to consider a whole new concept of the divine, 
not a distant God, not a removed force, but a God with them and for them. Because God is a God of radical love. And radical love meets us where we are. Radical love comes to us in our brokenness and loves us too much to leave us there. Radical love gave the Israelites the law and the temple so that they could be in relationship with God. And then it came to us and it fulfilled the law in the temple because it had become a list of do's and don'ts and not a relationship. And so it was accomplished, it was fulfilled so that we could know God intimately. See, if we come back to this question of why would God ask us to do something, to love radically in this way, to to have our loves defined by something that we can't do, why would God ask us to turn the other cheek, to give up our coat, to, to go the extra mile? Maybe it's because anything that's worth doing can only be done in partnership with God because we were only ever intended to operate as a pair with Him. Maybe it's because God knows how to radically love. When the Israelites worshipped other gods again and again, offending and hurting God, He forgave them and turned the other cheek. When God had every right to abandon sinful humanity, when we abused Jesus and turned from Him, He gave up far more than a coat. When, when we could never even make it one mile towards Him, God came from heaven to earth to mend the divide between us. See, God wants us to love radically, to love each other radically, to, to love the world radically, but not with our ability to love, not with, not with our capacity for love, with His. See, God's intent is that we would be so filled with the love of God that from our soul would start to seep this, this supernatural love. That, that people will step back and say, why is that? Why, why did you do that? And, and we'll say, God has poured His love into me so much that, that it's kind of starting to get all over the place. I, I, I think I, I might be leaking love because it's weird. You're mad at me and I love you. You're doing something wrong and I love you. You're testing my patience and I love you. You're making me look bad and I love you. You're hating me, oppressing me, opposing me and and I love you. Not because you're a saint. Not because you're special. Not because you're amazing and can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But because you were so aware, so full of God's love that then the world will know that there is something different about us, and they want to know what it's all about, and all we'll be able to do is point to God, because when you take slaps to the face, when you give up your legal rights and and help someone a lot more than you need to, you you find yourself out in deep water with God, and, and you realize that you didn't need to slap back that you didn't need to hold on to your rights, you didn't need to do the bare minimum, you realized what you needed all along was God. And we start to feel His support in in ways that we would normally never notice. We start to live life as it was meant to be lived. See, in a moment, I want to finish with a prayer. Because here's the thing, I believe that, that we all need more of God's love. In a second, the team's going to play, they're going to sing a song, and I want to invite you in a moment to stand up and to raise your hands and to worship and to reach out to God, to ask Him to remind you of how loved you are.
to ask him to remind you of, of how he feels about you. But the other thing I want you to do is just as you, you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I want you to ask God to remind you how he feels about others. I want you to ask God to remind you how he feels about your, your friends and your family. I want you to ask God to remind you how he, he feels about your workmates. I want you to ask God to reveal something of his heart to you about how he feels about the world, his intention towards them. I just want you to take just, just 10 seconds and just, just wait. Just ask God, God, how? How do you feel?